many people are very new to meditation. Not really done very much meditation. How many people have had experience with insight meditation? Some experience. Okay. Or Zen, which is often very similar. How many people have read, have some minimum information about the Buddha, the life of the Buddha, and things of this sort? Difficult group to. Okay, the title of the talk is The Buddha's Ancient Path of Meditation A Modern Challenge. I'd like to make our evening together a very practical one. To begin with, I'll give you some information. But before long, I'd really like to open things up to dialogue rather than just you sitting and soaking up this information, interesting as perhaps some of it may be. Um, before we even start that, I'd like to read this quote. Does everyone have a copy of the, this quote from the Buddha? This, from the discourse on the practice of attentiveness, or sometimes called mindfulness, awareness. It reads... Whether going out or returning, the yogi, and here that phrase yogi, doesn't mean necessarily somebody doing physical postures, but let's say a meditator. The yogi acts with full attention. Whether looking ahead or looking around, he or she, I updated that, it just says he in the original, of course. He or she acts with full attention. Whether bending an arm or straightening it, he or she acts with full attention. In taking one's overrobe, bowl, that's the equipment of a monk or a nun, perhaps doesn't apply to us. In taking one's overrobe, bowl, and spare underrobe, the yogi acts with full attention. Whether defecating or urinating, he or she acts with full attention. Whether walking, standing, or sitting, whether resting or awake, whether talking or silent, he or she acts with full attention. Okay, that paragraph uttered approximately 2,500 years ago is revolutionary. It's very powerful, as simple-minded as it may seem and sound. What it's suggesting is to pay attention to our life as we live it. In other words, in the moment that we live it, bringing direct attention to our actual life as we actually live it, wherever we are. So just those of you who are new to meditation, you've already started. You were sitting. So all I asked you to do, really, was how is it to sit? What's it like to be sitting? Just know that you're sitting because that's what you're doing. Okay, so we've already begun just a simple activity like filing into this hall and sitting down. But what is suggested there, uh, that paragraph, as simple as it is, has produced thousands of volumes, commentary and upon commentary about what it really means and what it may lead to and how it's different from other practices and so forth. I'll spare us a lot of that. Most of it is just academic hair splitting, which doesn't get to the real essence, which is simple. Not easy, but simple. Or the instructions are rather simple. It's this sensitivity to our life as it happens. And I would add something else, which perhaps 
might not come through from these words. It's awareness or attentiveness with the willingness or intention to learn. So it's not simply that you're attentive to what you're doing and at this moment we're all sitting and talking and listening, but that there's a real attitude, there's a real approach and orientation. And that approach is learning. There's a willingness to learn from that which we're experiencing. Again, the learning that's meant here is, I see some of you taking notes, and you're welcome to do that. That's one kind of learning. The learning that's meant here is direct. It's not limited to the intellect or the rational mind or the accumulation of information. In fact, its deeper meaning is quite the contrary, nonverbal. It has to do with a direct experience of our experience. Or if you're sitting to really, what is it like to be sitting? And if you do that, you may notice that you're not comfortable. That you're sitting in such a way that isn't comfortable. Well, if you have the attitude of learning, now that may seem like a fairly trivial occurrence. Maybe you're sitting and you notice that the weight is mainly on your right buttock. And if you sit that way long enough, your buttock is going to scream out and say, hey, over to the left a little. And we do it unconsciously. So then before long, you notice you're going to be going over like this until the left one kind of screams out and says, get back over to the right a little. Okay, now, we're correcting ourselves. We're going like this and like this all day long and scratching and nothing personal. Um, and some of it is that the body keeps giving us information about its state as do our feelings and our mind. And we're responding only we're responding mainly mechanically. We're not really learning very much from what's happening to us. Now, if you have the attitude of simple attention, again, with this willingness to learn, then it becomes revolutionary. Otherwise, it's not just to be alert, which is quite a thing. I mean, to be alert is extraordinary. But the alertness has a certain sensitivity in it, a willingness to learn. The reason I say that is that I've been around people who have heard this teaching in a somewhat limited way, that is to just be concentrated in everything that you do. But there hasn't been this real interest in learning, and so that that's helpful to be concentrated. But without that fire, it's a kind of fire, an enthusiasm about learning about what your life is. In other words, how do we actually live our life? The practice doesn't of meditation, of insight meditation, or as some of you may have heard as vipassana, which simply means insight, doesn't really uh, take off. Still helpful. You can get peaceful and calm and your blood pressure will go down, but it isn't a radical transformation. The transformation comes from the mind becoming very steady and fit to come to know itself. In other words, our life is scrutinized and it's scrutinized by us. And that which is scrutinizing it becomes more and more clear because that's another way of putting it. As, as we do this, it gets stronger. We become more clear. Okay, this statement was uttered a long time ago. And as you listen to it, it seems to me that it's pretty good advice now in 1983. There's only one thing in it that seems a little bit odd to talk about the robe, over-robe and under-robe and bowl, which were begging bowls. The monks and nuns at that time uh, would go around the countryside with bowls and beg, and that's how they got their food. That probably isn't appropriate for most of us. But the rest of it is pretty straightforward. 
you know, if you go through that, it's listed the main situations that we find ourselves in. We're talking or listening or in one posture or another, sitting, lying down, standing or walking all day long, all night long. So it's just a way of breaking life down into a few more uh, tangible categories so that we can grasp what is being pointed to, which is, please pay attention to what's happening. So right now, if you're listening to me, and also listening to yourself at the same time, if you're listening to me but you're not aware of yourself as a listener, and your mind is agreeing or disagreeing, that may be one standard of listening, but it isn't what's meant here. Or it's for you to really do meditative listening, it means that you're open to yourself too, your reactions, noticing your mind drift off if it does hearing a, a particular statement and seeing that it affects the body in a certain way, maybe negatively, maybe positively, so that the learning is going on in this situation. Okay, it's something that has to be developed. If you've just walked in off the street and you perhaps hear my words but find it difficult to do or think, that, how, how am I going to do that? Now I'm paying attention to him and now I'm back to myself and I'm getting a little bit tired by thinking you're running around a lot. It becomes easier, but of course it takes a little bit of time just for doing of it. Okay. What I'd like to do tonight, um, and you can help me because, see, this were a group of, say, people who are Buddhists or had been doing Buddhist meditation for many years, etc. Uh, there are certain assumptions that could be made and also certain obstacles that I personally see and not me uniquely, others see it as this form of meditation has made its way from the Orient to the United States. There's some problems that have come up in that transmission. In bringing... See, I gave you this quote because it's relatively culture-free. There's nothing in it that's particularly Indian or Japanese or Korean or Tibetan or Vietnamese or what have you. The only thing that's somewhat cultural is the allusion to robes and bowls. But around this instruction to pay attention to your life as you live it has grown an enormous amount of stuff, cultural stuff, which may have been helpful in India, in Tibet, etc. Some of it is still helpful here and much of it is totally irrelevant. In fact, self-defeating. And I'd like to go into a bit of that. Again, you help me out if you feel that I'm talking to something that isn't your problem. Now, I know that many of you are starting, and so you're innocent. And some of the things that I'll be talking about are the problems that happen to people after they've meditated for a while. In other words, particularly those who are taken by Buddhist meditation, or it could be other denominations as well. The talk is not going to be sectarian. I'm not, there's no attempt to uh, add to the roles of world Buddhism or anything of that sort. In fact, the real word is not Buddhism, but Dharma. Dharma means truth. That's what the Buddha was teaching. It's not another ism or an ideology, but it certainly has become that, along with all the other ideologies that exist. And hopefully we can be able to tell the difference and steer clear of some of that, use it when it's helpful. Uh, so I'm attempting to do something that I hope works to some degree, and that is for many of you who are rather new to this material, to give you some of it, and yet to give you a, a certain um, perception or 
know, a hint as to some of the things that may come out of meditative work. Because if you've come here, that means you may have some interest in this. Okay. The teaching started 2,500 years ago. And if we just very briefly summarize the Buddha's life, very briefly, the Buddha, the man who was later to come to be known as the Buddha, was born into an aristocratic family and had everything. As a person, he was very talented, intelligent, handsome, strong, competent in sports, did well scholastically, and lived in a palace. His father, at a certain point, became aware of the fact that he was destined, based on what a certain astrologer told him, that he would either be a political leader or a spiritual leader. The father naturally wanted his son to replace him, to follow in his footsteps, to be a secular leader, political leader, become king himself. He knew that if he became a spiritual leader that he would just drop out of the whole thing. And so, arranged his life so that worldly joys were maximized. Hardship was minimized. Now, I don't know how much of this is true, how much of it is myth. We'll have to sift through it. I mean, we can't really. We're dependent on who knows what went on. This is 2,500 years ago. Uh, some of the information seems to be pretty reliable and some of it seems to have been picked up over the years, but the symbolic meaning is still important, so it doesn't matter. And so, the man who later became the Buddha, for example, had a different palace according to the different seasons, so he wouldn't have to suffer. So, you know, pretty soon we could shift to Florida, you know. Not have to even know that there was such a thing as winter. Enjoy the fall and then be whisked away as soon as it became slightly unpleasant. And all kinds of sensual gratification and food and all kinds of playmates, everything. Eventually married, a very beautiful woman. Okay. Uh, the Buddha left all of this. Left all of it <clears throat> because he ran into what were called divine messengers. And one messenger was an old person, a sick person, a dead person, and then finally a meditating monk. These are four people that on different visits outside of the palace the Buddha encountered, and each one of them delivered a very powerful message to the Buddha. He found out that people get sick, he found out that they get old, he found out that they die, and he also found out that some people leave the whole thing behind and meditate. Okay, these are bare-bone facts that are helpful. And so the Buddha renounced. He let go of all of these things which most human beings would really like to have. Let go of it. And became a wandering ascetic and went through many different, many trials and tribulations, eventually abandoning asceticism and coming to what has now come to be known as the middle way. An approach that's between the extremes of indulgence or overindulgence and asceticism, self-imposed hardship, the middle way. <clears throat> to some degree, to a great extent, these teachings have, over the centuries, picked up this renunciatory quality. Or there's a, a, there has been, not exclusively, but a very positive value being put on leaving the world going off to a cave, to a forest, to a Buddhist meditation center, 
you tell me, wherever, some romantic image, and leaving behind all of this. Now, the Buddha was somebody who had it all and dropped it. And in a certain sense, I feel there's a parallel in our culture. Of course, this is not true of all of the members of our society. But for the people who turned to the spiritual path, very many of them, probably you all know this, didn't come from poor homes. They came from homes which were wealthy, or middle class, or upper middle class. The, in the 60s, the, the rebellion, the generation that went to India seeking these teachings, that looked for oriental teachers, were primarily from people who had had everything relative to this culture had taken that as far as they could and had found that that wasn't enough. And perhaps a symbol of it would be the landing on the moon and finding rocks on the moon and realizing that the incredible technological accomplishment of getting to the moon was wonderful and yet the people who landed on the moon didn't know who they were. And those of us who were down here cheering them on, we didn't know who we were. And that the enormous technological advances were not coupled or accompanied by individual satisfaction and fulfillment. So we have an extraordinary development on a technological level and on a personal level, not much fulfillment and satisfaction, but rather enormous gap. And so many people started turning to the East. I think there's even a book with that title. So insight meditation, which you've already begun tonight, and I'll we'll have uh, some more instruction, a little bit slightly more formal, and a chance for us to do some and to ask questions about it, grew out of this context. So when the Buddha taught, many of the people that he taught were renunciates, were monks and nuns. Not all. There were also many lay people. And if you read the dialogues of the Buddha, the teachings, you see that there were sometimes different teachings. The teachings for monks and nuns had a somewhat different emphasis than the teaching for people who had families. Obviously, there's some difference, and yet there's only one truth. Okay, so I'm trying to... uh, The roots of this practice, insight meditation, vipassana, come out of a, a monastic environment and have been, by and large, controlled by monastic settings for 2,500 years. It's a long time. That means that those instructions, if you hear them, of being mindful in every situation, obviously are not limited to a monastery and needn't be limited to being a monk or a nun. Does everyone, is there anyone who disagrees with that? Because it's important that we see that. It's just saying, pay attention. But the fact is that most of the people who are serious about doing that for all kinds of reasons, I think some of which were economic. If you really wanted to do it, it seemed that the only way to do it, or the best way to do it, not the only way, the best way to do it, was to not marry, if you were married, to get out of that relationship, to leave, to become a monk or a nun, to let go of relationships, work, etc., as we normally think of daily life. Okay, now there have been, diff- within the Buddhist development over these thousands of years, there have been in all the traditions, there have been groups that have not done this, that have not renounced. But this particular form of meditation has this strong coloration. That's what I'm talking about tonight. And I feel it has influenced all of Buddhism to, to one degree or another. And perhaps, perhaps most of Oriental spiritual teaching. 
I don't know. It may turn out to be all spiritual teaching. I really don't know. Okay, if the teaching had a monastic coloration, it meant that it was largely in the hands of monks and nuns, that there was special clothing that was worn to signify that you were a monk or a nun or somebody who was doing this work with great intensity. You lived in a special place, either a monastery or very secluded forest retreats. Many of the early yogis um, would come together in groups, but also would spend a lot of time alone, sitting under trees, wandering. After a while, uh, customs developed where people would not eat much. They wouldn't eat after noon, maybe one meal a day or two meals a day, only liquids for the rest of the day. Uh, celibate, no sexual relationship, no work. The society evolved so that those who are not doing the real meditation were supporting those who were. That is, the monks and nuns, it was mainly monks, were going around with bowls, begging, and the, the population at large would put food in their bowls so that they wouldn't starve. They could, and they, they thought, now whether this is true or superstition, I'll allow everyone to make their own choice, that by giving the meditator food and keeping them alive so that they could get enlightened, that they were accumulating merit. And often what this was, the scenario was that in the next lifetime or in the future lifetime, because they'd accumulated so, many, so much merit, that they would be reborn, not as a householder or a family person or a job holder, but as a monk or a nun. So a whole world emerged with values, norms, etc., and as, after a while, of course, it came to be taken, as all these worlds do, to be, this is the only way, this is the right way. And I'm not, say, not saying that there isn't some wisdom in it, because put another way, what uh, these early meditators were saying is, and this is what the Buddha said, the Buddha said that life is suffering. There's an enormous amount of suffering in life. And if you leave it at that, it sounds like it's a very pessimistic teaching. It's not pessimistic at all. To me, it isn't. I mean, each one of us will have to make their choice. He was saying that every human being has in common that notion we all suffer, independent of everything else. It's what we all have in common. And he capitalized on that, making that central, the starting point of the teaching, to a well-educated person, to somebody who had no schooling. All of us suffer, and so they're there could be a coming together around that very basic notion. But it was also suggested that through the direct contemplation of this suffering, that is to say the facing of it, the direct confrontation or contemplation, not really confrontation, it's not a struggle with it, it's an opening up to it, one goes beyond the suffering. And so it's not, it doesn't leave it as life is suffering. It would probably leave it at life, as life is suffering if, if it's a life that's unexamined. So that there was a bridge between the self-evident fact that we all suffer a great deal. Our body suffers, our mind suffers, everyone, rich and poor alike. And the bridge was self-knowledge. That is, if one could come to that we were suffering because we're ignorant. Literally, we are ignoring how we live. We don't really know how we live. We don't really know who we are or what we're doing. So if we stop that, that little quote, Instead of ignoring how we live, 
if we start to pay attention to how we actually live underscore actually we start to scrutinize how we from moment to moment really live that's what I mean if you do that you'll see that there's a fair amount of unhappiness in your life now this I hope is not taken as opinionated I feel fairly confident that just know, although I don't know you most of you personally just the fact that we're human it's very difficult to be a human being I'm taking the liberty of assuming that and what is suggested is that if you start to pay attention to your life instead of ignoring it one of the first things that's going to come across very strongly is pain you're going to start to see the many ways in which we're living in ways that don't seem to work in our jobs in our relationships how we eat how we exercise or don't exercise the body it's endless how we sit in the chair how we care for ourselves and others okay now if that unsatisfactoriness is if, if we bring a mind uh, an attentive mind and sensitivity and a willingness to learn to those events in our life what is being suggested is that there's a transformation we come to understand and it's through the living of this understanding as we 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 become a disciple of our own understanding and it's in doing that that we free ourselves and so what is being suggested is that there are that it is not necessary for a human being to just suffer and suffer and suffer but there is you want to call it a way out okay. whether you agree with this or not I'm just trying to portray it I'm not interested in defending it quite honestly I'm much more interested in what you have to say and what each one of us has to say this is just what, what was said and it may have some merit today and it may not or it may be limited why give up relationships with the opposite sex why not have a job why live in a secluded way why not earn a living etc I think part of what was being said very directly at times is that these are very very powerful energies sex is very powerful desire if you want to call it that money very powerful power prestige these are all very powerful energies most of us don't know what to do with them the rich and the poor alike people who have total access to sexuality and people who are completely cut off we don't seem to know what to do with these energies people who are very famous and people who are obscure and so what's suggested is that if you, these the objects of the world are so fraught with the potential for pain and suffering that one strategy and I would call it a strategy is to withdraw from them at one point the Buddha said that the whole world is on fire he said if you look around you'll see that the entire world is on fire now these days it's almost becoming literally true what he meant was not uh, nuclear, nuclear holocaust but psychologically there was craving there was such hunger to get what we think we don't have and to push away what we think what we do have and don't want that everyone was on fire with desire with feeling empty inadequate unfulfilled and running after something to remedy that and usually that something was an object I mean that descriptively a person money a new place to live a new job you know new clothes it's endless what we can set up outside of ourselves run after it and think that that will remedy our situation 
And so the strategy was that these objects are so dangerous, particularly, let's say, sex, money, that we just won't touch them. Food. Food is another very powerful one. How many people know how to eat? I mean, we're all beginning to learn that. American society is becoming quite sensitive to that now. And so the approach was, we just won't deal with it. We'll go off somewhere and we'll cut it off. And we'll meditate. Now, I'm not saying that that isn't a brilliant strategy or even a necessary one to deal with a rather desperate situation of generation after generation going through extraordinary suffering. And out of it, probably some people broke through. I'd be very surprised if they didn't. I feel that I've already met a few who have. That is, even people who have never had what we would call a normal sexual relationship in their life, have never held a job, and are extraordinarily happy. I don't think there are a lot of them. I'm talking about monks and nuns now, renunciates. And I'm not here to evaluate that. What I'm suggesting is that it's one human solution to a human problem. We all find ourselves in this problem of suffering. And one solution in the Buddhist tradition has been this avoidance of the very things which cause all the pain. Okay, it's very important that we see that for, for us to move further. One of the reasons that we experience so much pain, perhaps the main reason, is that all these objects are impermanent. They don't last. Now we're rich and then we're poor. Now we're beautiful and then we're ugly. And now we're healthy and then we're sick. And then we become healthy again and then we become sick again. And we're young and then we become old and we have a nice place to live and then it burns down. We don't have a nice place to live. Yeah, do I have to go on? And we're in a good mood and we're in a bad mood. And in fact, just the time that you've been here, just those five minutes or so that we sat quietly, probably your mind went through changes. You know, who does he think he is? I didn't come here to meditate. I wanted to hear a talk. And then, well, it isn't so bad. I, you know, hey, I feel a little bit more peace. It's all right. Let's do this longer. And then your body was comfortable and then it wasn't comfortable or it was uncomfortable and then it got comfortable. Just staggering. Yeah, it's just going on and on and on. Impermanence. Just change, change, change. Okay, so the approach to dealing with it, and there seems to be no sign that this is going to stop. 2,500 years ago, now if you read the ancient text, things were changing then too. Everything was falling apart then too. They didn't have nuclear weapons. They had daggers, you know, and poison arrows. And, but you died, nonetheless. Or you remained or you didn't have enough food to eat, or you had too much food to eat, or whatever it is. Okay, so now this tradition has been kept alive for 2,500 years, sometimes called Theravada or Hinayana. And it's direct, there's a direct lineage tracing back to the Buddha. And some feel it's the oldest ongoing monastic tradition on the face of the earth. It's there's been no discontinuity. It's just kept going. So there have been some pretty heavy people who just wanted to keep this alive. And I personally am extraordinarily grateful to them. Um, I've lived as a monk for a while, so I have some taste of that. That's not why I'm grateful. I'm grateful because, to some degree, these people kept the teaching alive. They kept some of these very simple truths and techniques alive so that I personally feel I benefited from it. Okay, so now this teaching, which has been largely monastic, 
Vipassana has been largely monastic. When I went to Tibet, not so monastic, more a mixture, and the same in Zen, a mixture. But in India, and in Burma, and Thailand, and Laos, which is where this has flourished, it's been largely monastic. And the monks have controlled it, mainly monks. The nuns have been under the monks, and there's been a kind of an elite. And I'm using that term now descriptively. I'm not putting it down. It means that people cut themselves off and went through a very, at times, rarefied form of training, a very a subtle doctrine that had to be learned, or is a theory of mind that's very intricate. And if you try to read some of the very profound teachings, you'll see it's quite a challenge. And at very arduous training procedures, long hours of sitting meditation, walking meditation, a moral code that's quite demanding, etc. In other words, a life that's quite arduous. But also special. Cut off from the rest of the population. Carried out in special places, special clothing, food, and in general all the conditions are different. The lay people servicing the yogis. The lay people taking great pleasure at times and great satisfaction. And having been on the receiving end, it's quite amazing to have people treat you uh, with such dedication simply because you're a meditator. And you find that still in the Orient. It's dying out. But you can still go to places all through the Orient. They're becoming fewer and fewer. They're, they're now becoming here. Here's the place where it is. Where just because you've said that you'd meditate for two weeks or for three months, you'll see people who themselves have very little money come and cook for you and worship you, feel that it's extraordinary what you're doing. You're trying to become a Buddha. You're trying to become enlightened. But they're transferring it to, to us, to someone else. Okay, so now this teaching has come to the United States and just a little bit of history and it's a generalization. Those of you who are perhaps more inside these worlds may see some differences which definitely exist. The first generation of people who went to the Orient and also who studied with Oriental teachers were totally dependent on the teaching as it was, obviously. In other words, you go to a place like Korea or Japan or Burma, you don't go over there and say, well, look, I'm an American, teach it to me my way. You eat Korean food and you wear Korean clothes and you abide by Korean customs as best you can. You know, whatever culture. And also, being uninformed and rather naive spiritually naive just being a, a description that we many of the people who went there didn't know very much about religion or spiritual life often had been rebels in their own religion the religion they had grown up in in my own case Judaism Orthodox Judaism and were all too willing to just say tell me how to do it uh, a kind of myth that wisdom is the monopoly of the East I say myth because experience has shown that it's hardly the truth and those who have not been to the East you can see that there's no monopoly on wisdom it's as much of a disaster there as it is here in many ways worse and so the first generation of Westerners who brought the teaching back in a sense picked it up lock, stock and bagel just took the whole thing back and brought it to places like Boston California etc not much critical refinement people didn't know any better I mean there was no choice but to practice it the way in which we were taught and then to share it with people that we met in the way in which we were taught 
and before you know it, problems. The main problems turn out to be because in my own case, I wasn't Japanese or Korean. There's nothing wrong with Japan or Korea, but it just turns out that I personally am not. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And so trying to carry out a teaching a certain way or Burmese way or whatever um, becomes pathetic at times, laughable, inspiring at times, you know, the degree to which people will go to try and free themselves. But at a certain point, it becomes clear that what's happening is that many of us in the West were and are, I feel still, we're doing impersonations of Tibetan impersonations of Japanese people, impersonations of Korean people, and being proud of it. Isn't it wonderful? Look at me, how Japanese I am. I eat tofu, and I eat with chopsticks, and I... Well, implying that there's some spiritual advantage to that. Or growing a beard, or shaving a head, or eating vegetables, or not eating vegetables. You know, it's endless, as you probably all know by now. Just because, historically, certain people who identify themselves as being on the spiritual path did do that. There may be some other good reasons too. Maybe it is wonderful to eat vegetables and not to kill animals to eat. I'm not denying that there is some merit to it. Before long though, maybe I should just start speaking personally because what I'm saying now is just my own experience, my opinion. It isn't only mine. I would say a growing number of Americans and Western, Westerners are coming to conclusions a little bit like this. Mine may be a little bit extreme, but it's in general what seems to be happening to many of us. At a certain point, we learned that there is a, a, a dramatic difference between this teaching and what's going on in this country. And some of it amounts to the very simple fact that the tremendous spiritual yearning and hunger in the United States, and I think that much of it is quite genuine, at whatever level it raises itself and, and screams out. And it's growing all the time, and I see it maturing and uh, in many ways quite beautiful. And it also vulgarizations of it and trivializations of it and most of all commercialization of it. It's becoming Americanized and with everything that that is entailed with that. Um, the people who seem to have the most energy for example let's say undergo meditative training which is what I know best there are many other things and this is the, what I'm speaking about tonight I don't know the others as well uh, are by and large not monks or nuns and don't intend to be monks or nuns there are people like I assume you are and I am who have jobs or who want a job who are living with someone, a man or a woman, either in marriage or not in marriage, perhaps have children or want to have children, etc. Um, who like to eat three times a day. Who like to have different kinds of clothes to change into and out of. Who enjoy a movie now and then. And suddenly you have a teaching that is colored. It's not the teachers who came over, the oriental teachers, of course would say, you know, you're all lay people and you have to find your own way. But their teaching was so colored by a monastic approach that I think it was very difficult for many people, the, ancient, the uh, oriental teachers, to be other than who they were, of course. So it has to be our job. 
to my knowledge, one of the first to recognize it, some of you may have read this, if you haven't, a very beautiful little book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. How many people have read that book? This will help me know how to talk to. Okay, it's a very fine book on meditation, similar to what we'll be learning tonight, beginning to learn. And he's a Japanese Zen master who said, maybe 15 years ago, he really saw it then, said, you Americans are different. You're not monks as I know monks, and you're also not lay people as I know lay people. That is, in the Orient, the really serious spiritual people, by and large, at least in Japan, were monks and nuns. And lay people weren't as serious. Their job was kind of earning money to pay, pay the tab, or to support the monks and nuns, pay, pay all the bills for the Buddhist temple. There's a kind of trade-off that goes on that way. I could get even more detailed, but even more opinionated. What I saw was mainly uh, women unhappily married to men who were not the least bit interested in Buddhism. The women were. And the women would take the money from the husband who didn't want to come to the temple or meditate or pray or do any of that silly stuff. Women were lonely, and so they would take the money to the temple, give their husband's hard-earned money to the temple in exchange for sometimes meditating, but at least some intimacy, some warmth, some company from the monks and nuns. That's a psychological interpretation that probably, you know, Orientals might not like, but that's how I saw it over there. That was one dynamic at work. Okay, so we find ourselves in a situation where, here, look, if we look around, there's no two people wearing the same clothing here. And if you go to, let's say, uh, a monastery, everyone's wearing the same clothes. Now, just to, as a precaution, I'm not trying to devalue the monastic way of life or the contemplative way of life. I have the greatest respect for it. In fact, what I'm trying to suggest is a, the emergence, for some people at least, of a new way of living which integrates real contemplation and solitude and action much in the way in which we normally think, the way in which we normally live. What I am suggesting is that to take one form of monastic life, and there are many forms, but I think most of them have had this impact, to bring it over here and to not realize how much color, there, how much coloration there is in it, and then to transmit it to a group of lay people can have some very negative consequences. Let me give you a somewhat... Um, I'm only going to talk a little bit longer and then I'd really like to hear some questions. Um, unless I get this across, I don't know if you're becoming impatient, but unless I bring some of this information across, there won't be a basis, a common basis, for us to understand something that I'm trying to suggest for this evening, which is very practical. And it's, in my opinion, the main reason that we're here together. It's not to get the history of Buddhism. I don't see what... That can be interesting, but that's not going to make much difference. I think there's something very practical that for us to learn tonight, and I hope I can at least convey some of that. Let me give you a somewhat uh, idealized scenario that I've seen many times now. It's happened to me, and I've seen it happen to others. Westerners 
Step number one is pain in the world. It could be an unsatisfactory occupational life. It could be a series of unsatisfactory relationships, a marriage that ends. It could be not knowing what occupation, being somewhat confused occupationally. Okay, the person's unhappy, attempting to live out daily life as it's been handed to us in this society and not doing too well, suffering, and sometimes being successful in suffering. It doesn't mean that the person, they may have lots of uh, money and officially a good job and still seeing something off in that. Or it could be lots of relationships or no relationships, but at a certain point, feeling unfulfilled and yet fully attempting to participate according to how we were brought up. And it's seeing that it's not working and then suddenly something is brought in, meditation. And now it's, uh, it's almost uh, reaching a peak of relaxation, stress reduction, meditation. It's almost the newest form of greed. More than sex and money, you've got to get relaxed. You've got to get unstressed. The epitome being a book by a medical doctor called you must relax, exclamation point. <laughs> Which is pretty, you know, produces quite a bit of tension if you... And so people then discover meditation. And for those of you who are new, you'll have to take it on faith. And some of you I know have been some old yogis here, I recognize. There is something to this meditation stuff. It's not a complete hype. It's hard work. Those of you who've been doing it for a while know that. And if any of you have been told, oh, it's just a snap, don't worry. Touch upon it too much tonight. Some of you are therapists, you probably know that. Okay, so the person goes away to a meditation center or does a weekend retreat or gets a teacher and starts doing the practice, but really doing it. And particularly if you go away and then eventually you start to get, let's say, a little meditation room in your house, nice little rug, Turkish prayer rug, and then you, it's the grows, you know, flowers and a picture of someone and incense, and maybe you don't use the room for anything else but meditation, maybe a little bit of hatha yoga, a little stretching, and after a while it becomes a sacred place, and the meditation starts to grow, and you can open the door, go inside, fold your legs or sit in a chair, that really isn't so important, and you start to feel a measure of peace that you don't experience in quotes out there. And this has some value. It has some value to find, to create really, because each one of us, we create that sanctuary for ourselves and then we can inhabit it. The mind makes it and then we can use it. It's a stage prop, which we then can make use of. And as it gets better and better and your sitting practice gets stronger, maybe you get into fancy sitting positions and get special clothes and you learn to sit straight, eat vegetables, and before you know it, the, the whole thing, the whole trip. Suddenly, and especially if you go away for two-week retreats and month-long retreats, and they exist now, if you don't know that, they do and they're accessible. Before you know it, the so-called daily life becomes even more hateful and horrible and disgusting than it was before you ever heard of meditation. And you just have a very dirty, noisy, loud, ugly world out there with people who don't understand, who are harsh, and we eat meat all the time, and all the rest of it. And then there's us, very sensitive, 
very insightful, compassionate, with our little room that we can crawl into whenever we want to. And it only accentuates that split where we have sacred, so-called sacred, and so-called profane. And before long, we may even start thinking that, you know, asceticism, maybe I, sexes and everything was cracked up to, and maybe I am overeating, and who knows? Before you know it, uh, subtly or in an explicit way, a virtue starts to come about much the way in which it's been handled by monks and nuns. Maybe for good reason, I don't know. Maybe the only way to do it is to become a monk or nun and just drop all this nonsense of relationship and money and job and all that. I don't believe that, but I mean, I'm open. Who knows? And so what then happens is that we discredit daily life and the daily life which was enough of a problem to begin with is now even worse. Now, if you were going to become a full-time meditator or, or a nun or a monk and could live out your life in a monastery or some other equivalent environment and never had to deal with, you no longer have to deal with that stuff out there, full speed ahead. But you see, that isn't, those aren't the facts. And the facts are that probably everyone in this room or most of the people in this room will be spending most of our time in what we call daily life at a job, in relationships, with a family, with children, in a school. That's a fact. You may even go away for a three-month retreat, but you're, you'll come back. And more and more, as you take on more responsibilities, your life won't, and assuming you still are interested, you still are open to the spiritual journey, your life will still have those requirements and you may love meditation, but now we have this kind of a non-hospitalizable schizophrenia. Where we have, and I'm thinking of one place where I teach and I do retreats, it's very beautiful, I hope you go there, Insight Meditation Society, right? It's a very wonderful place. Good vegetarian food, it's everything I'm talking about. Dedicated teachers, dedicated staff, it's a marvelous place. And there are others like it, and there'll be more. We go away to, the, to places like that and our meditation gets stronger and then we have this split between the sacred and the profane. And we see daily life as not really worthwhile, as something lesser. And at the real, if you really want to do it, it's this. I don't know if you can all see me, but I have a very beautiful look on my face. My legs would be folded if I could fold them. My eyes look very something or other much like a statue in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Okay. So that, if you notice, the meditation instructions, don't, they point to every aspect of life. Even defecating and urinating as meditation is done with a certain sincerity. Or is this not a trivial thing? It means it's done wholeheartedly with sensitivity. There's nothing that's trivial. So that the Buddha isn't saying the only thing that is it is this, sitting cross-legged, you know, with special garments and a certain posture. However, that particular posture has gotten featured. In other words, it's gotten singled out and it's come to stand for the entire journey. And so you go into a museum, you don't see a statue of somebody vacuuming, you know, and saying, this is the Buddha. You know, or two people making love and saying, this is Mr. and Mrs. Buddha. Okay. Now, that's another, that's another part of this unfoldment. The place of women in for 2,500 years 
in the spiritual traditions and the place of women now, it's just a totally different landscape. It's just, and it's a, a, one of the most significant changes that's happening in the spiritual development in this country, I would suggest. I don't think that's, I mean, it seems pretty obvious. It's just, okay, we can get to that. Uh, by and large, the attitude, very often, was that, the, that men attain liberation. And if you're a good woman, you help your man get there, but you don't get there. That's how you get there. But, and then, they're actually, I've met women who are praying to be reborn as men in the next lifetime. Maybe it's true. What? <laughs> see that? Okay, so let me see if I can give you an example. This is the most concrete, vivid, and it's a trivial one, but it, uh, my own experience is that, that this infiltrates much more important areas of life, especially relationship and work. The example uh, is of somebody who I knew who... Uh, who came to actually an interface class some years ago and started to do this meditation and really took to it and eventually went to Insight Meditation Society and started doing weekend retreats and two-week retreats and I happened to be present on one long retreat that this person did and they did the, the uh, eating meditation just exquisite attention just each bite you know total awareness total sensitivity the body fully there eating the meal in other words contemplative eating if we had time, that's one, th it's one kind of meditation again. And then walking, tremendously graceful, fully in the walking, very slow meditative walking that is done at meditation centers. And this person was just doing a beautiful job of it. If there were awards were given, this person wouldn't win. Number one walker and eater. Just really beautiful. And I was impressed. I saw this person has really grown a lot. I mean, it's a very concentrated mind, and I felt, hmm, I played a small part in that as a teacher. Good. And then, a couple of months later, I happened to be heading to a party, and I met this person, and we were on the way, and I noticed his walking was totally wild. I mean, his head was one way, his arms were this way, and it was just a totally awkward, poorly coordinated bodily movement. It was, you know, disjudged looked like he was becoming unglued. In other words, his mind and body were not in the same place, not even close, which sounded seemed strange to me after I'd seen this almost ballet. And then we went to the party and then we were all eating and having a good time and his eating was just as wild, grabbing things and gulping it down and, you know, just getting stuff all over him. And at a certain point, I just couldn't resist anymore. So I went over to him and I said, you know, when we were at the Insight Meditation Society, you know, your movements was just uh, was like a work of art. Uh, how come now it's just so different? Your walking is so different, and your eating is so different. And he didn't know the answer, but then we kind of explored it. He was a very open person, fortunately. And then we had a huge laugh. It turns out that at the Insight Meditation Society, eating and walking are sanctified. Or is it's a spiritual technique. I'm now, you know, I'm walking. That means you're a yogi, a meditator, you're headed towards enlightenment, etc. Same body, same feet. Okay, now I'm eating. Well, it's now eating meditation. Contemplative eating. Then you go outside, it's just the same old jerky walking, you know, and stupid eating. What's the big deal? Okay, now, can you see how the mind has made that? There's no sacred or profane. And that kind of split is all too likely to be perpetuated 
when you have a split where special people do the spiritual work and they go to special places and wear special clothes. It has a much more of a tendency to, to come about that way because they're not challenged in certain ways. They've created a hothouse environment in a way. Now again, I'm not putting that down because out of that can come some extraordinary developments. Some people who can, precisely because they've given everything up can go very, very deep inwardly and can come to God or Buddha nature or whatever language you feel comfortable with. Freedom. But what I'm suggesting is that that isn't our situation. In other words, we as lay people, most of us, will live out our days like this. You know, wearing Birkenstocks and, uh, you know, stretch pants and all the rest of it. Now, does that mean that we're less spiritual? Now, what I would like to suggest is that the deepest teaching of the Buddha has nothing whatsoever to do with any form. It has nothing to do with whether you're a monk or a nun or eat vegetables or don't eat vegetables. It has to do with the inner meaning of what you're doing. It, you can be a millionaire or you can be poverty-stricken. You can be a millionaire and be totally free and at one. You can be poverty-stricken and be just poor and miserable. Nothing particularly spiritual about it. You can be hungry and it's not particularly a virtue. It's pathetic. It's terrible. It's awful. Anyone who's experienced even a little hunger. Okay, now, so this is the case. We find ourselves as modern Western people, unless you're thinking of becoming a monk or a nun, if you take on any of these meditation practices, and I feel that they apply to more than just insight meditation, which is what I know best, but others that you may know, if you, if you see them as special in a certain way, what you're going to do is, to some degree, not get the fullness out of meditation. Because full, real meditation is living more wholeheartedly. It's, a, it's a, a way of living more fully. And it has nothing to do necessarily with any particular form. It has to do with the sense of with who's in there, who's doing it, and how you're doing it. And so you can use relationship as a spiritual vehicle as well as the absence of relationship as a spiritual vehicle. You can use money as a spiritual vehicle. By that I mean a way of growing, of learning, of freeing yourself, as well as the absence of money. You can eat eating food as well as not eating food. Meat, vegetables, just take it. Special clothes, no special clothes. It's not what you do, it's what you do with it, how you do it. For example, this so-called daily life, which is so difficult. Let's try to, <clears throat> there's sort of a model, and this is maybe the last thing that I'd really like to hear what you have on your mind. If what I was saying has any validity, the first model that was set forward, the objects of the world are very dangerous. The world is on fire. Sex is dangerous, relationship is dangerous, family is dangerous, money is dangerous, food is dangerous. It's dangerous. We just want to handle a little of it and control it. What that implies is a healthy fear of a very powerful energy. It also suggests that the people did not trust themselves to be able to live with that energy. Now, I'm not saying that's stupid. Maybe that was real wisdom. But it's one model. And so the model became to not be attached. Okay? It meant not touching 
certain objects because they were potentially too dangerous from a spiritual point of view. Now, I'd like to use a notion of non-attachment. Is there anyone who's not heard that phrase? That's coming in big lately. I'm not attached. Anyone not heard that? Okay, now, the way in which that has been used has been literally non-attachment, meaning that uh, I don't eat. I only eat one meal a day, which means I'm not attached to food. That's a rather superficial meaning of it. Non-attachment, I'd like to suggest a meaning and a way of life which is appropriate for lay people, people like ourselves. It means not running away from the things of the world. It means you can have a relationship or not have one. That isn't really the issue. But since probably most of us want them and will have them, the real question is not the relationship, but how we live in that relationship. Do we use the relationship as something to grow and learn, learn and grow, or do we use it as a prison? Do we use it with other people to educate ourselves in the deepest sense? I don't mean accumulating information, but I mean self-knowledge leading to wisdom, which comes out of all the problems that exist in relationship. You find out exactly how petty you are. Has anyone not found this out? How possessive, how jealous, how vain. I mean, it's just... Uh, you know, it's like a mirror, just put right in front of your face. So it would be like, leaving a relationship would be like you look in the mirror and you're not quite as attractive as you'd like to be, so you take the mirrors out of life, you know, you smash them. Okay, no more mirrors are allowed in society. A relationship is a mirror in that sense. Every time you come into a pres the presence of somebody, you have a reaction. And it could be a relatively unimportant one. Or it could be substantial. And we have images of ourselves. I'm a wonderfully compassionate person, very generous. And somebody comes up and says, can you spare $10 until payday? And suddenly you find your body tighten up and you pull away. Okay, a life of awareness means seeing the discrepancy between some idealized image that you have of yourself and right there in that moment, the actuality of what you're learning, that you really don't want to give this person any of your money and you, don't really, and you care more about yourself than them. But not seeing it as a way of condemning yourself. It's not used as another uh, bludgeon another way of, of hurting yourself, but simply learning from that. Mm, isn't that interesting? I thought of myself as being extraordinarily generous and compassionate, and here I won't even lend someone a few bucks. Again, not using that to create guilt or to, to further diminish ourselves, but simply to learn. Now, if you can establish yourself in this life of awareness and learning, and that's what I feel this quote's about, then if something like that happens, it's not bad when you find out that you're selfish or that you're possessive or that you're frightened or that you're lonely. When we find these things out about ourselves, it's not bad, it's just true. It's just a fact which we then, because we can work with it honestly and directly, perhaps we have a chance of freeing ourselves from it. Now, if, you do, if we relate to things always in terms of success and failure, problems and then we either complain or condemn people if, if only these people were a certain way my life would be okay if only I had more of X, Y, and Z always either blaming others for our fate or totally blaming ourselves I'm an awful horrible human being the approach being suggested here is neither it's seeing every encounter in life as a challenge 
a challenge for self-discovery. In fact, it makes life extremely rich if you're willing to do it. And at the beginning, it's very, very difficult, and that's often why it's helpful to sit in groups and have people call teachers to encourage you. We all need to encourage each other, really. Okay, now, the ancients had some very difficult training techniques they used, like sitting alone in the jungle, and there was one school which would do a walking meditation right within range of tigers, for example. If you showed any fear, the tigers were much more likely to come at you, whereas if there was no fear, the tigers would leave you alone, and that was done intentionally. Can you imagine how, in, how right there they were in the moment? If you're doing a walking meditation, and you know, okay, and now those forms are not relevant for us. There's no jungle. We have a different jungle. It's not any the less difficult. Our jungle is a jungle of relationship, of appropriate work, of nonviolence, and you know, of the of the of politics. So that the spiritual life doesn't have to be divorced from politics. See that in one sense, having this split where certain special people do the spiritual work in the mountains, in the caves, in the jungles has been a total disaster. It is it has also created as a byproduct a fragmented way of living where the spiritual energy goes off somewhere else and then the rest of us yo-yos we have to mill about and all we do is create one war after another and kill each other off big wars and little wars psychological wars and physical wars and so what is being suggested here is a model that the spiritual energy has no particular place to be there's no particular way to look or particular clothing or region or you name it. In fact, what's being suggested is, and maybe it's crucial, is that what is desperately needed is for this so-called daily life, which is where we find ourselves mostly, to be spiritualized. Rather than uh, extracting ourselves from daily life to escape from it and to get some incredible state that we think is out there, some wonderful, perhaps fanciful, meditative state that's out there. If, and I'm not saying those states don't exist. In fact, I would say they do exist. But even in those states, you have to come out of them. And then you wake up and there you are again, urinating and defecating and eating and brushing your teeth for the two minutes time and saying hi, good morning for the three billionth time, etc. And so I feel that what's emerging is a different model I'm not saying it's superior necessarily from what's come before us. It's the same ancient teaching, a kernel of which is in that quote. And it includes going away. It includes going away to quiet places, uh, which I do periodically, for extended periods of time where the environment's controlled. Special food, your clothing is washed for you, um, no one bothers you. You can just really be with yourself and penetrate very, very deeply. You don't have to worry about your boss. Or, there's no relationship. It's in silence. Or it's a tremendously simplified environment, which has usually gone on in monasteries or environments like monasteries. I'm not saying eliminate those. Those are very precious resources that the human race has and have to be protected. It's, it's another endangered species. A real monastery is an extraordinary event. There aren't too many of them, in my experience. And I've really looked. And I know other people who have. So it's not to throw those out it's to go to these places and to use them to take advantage of the special power that they have but to understand that when you're let's say at a monastery to do that wholeheartedly and when you're back in so-called daily life 
to do that wholeheartedly. See, really, there's only daily life. There's, that's all we have. It's from moment to moment, this life. Okay, so it's a, it's a new model which suggests some things that follow from it is that as vital as the sitting meditation is, sitting quietly, focusing your energy, and it's easier to do from when you're quiet, you don't have any responsibilities, you're not talking to anyone. As wonderful as sitting meditation is, it isn't our whole life. And so when we sit, we sit wholeheartedly. And then when we brush our teeth, we brush our teeth, we make love, we play tennis, whatever it is that we're doing. And so it's really a way of life, it's not a technique. And I see that that's what's happening to Vipassana, insight meditation. It's happening to it because the people trying to do it sincerely and the teachers are finding in their own lives that unless they live this way, they have, they're creating an inauthentic existence, which is based on other people's experience, which, which is not relevant for us. It's a different culture, a different time period. Men-women relationships dramatically change. Technology. It's a, in short, we're at the threshold of a, uh, a radically new dimension, potentially, of living. I'm not saying it's going to be great. I don't know. I think that there are some very positive signs along with the obvious negative ones. For example, one of them is if meditation could free itself from a lot of the cultural sectarian limitations that it has accumulated over the centuries. It could be a force of unification for human beings. For example, I think the key, and I'll end with this, perhaps the key disease on the planet right now is not nuclear weapons, but the attachment to chauvinism, to national chauvinism, which will potentially misuse this tremendous source of energy called nuclear weapons. When people start thinking that who they really are are whatever these countries, you know, in other words, we are different from each other, but there's certainly much more, we're much more the same than we are different. We all have these parts and we bleed and we love our children and we, we're in pain when, we, when certain things happen. Meditation has a way of washing out, I think what I would call the relatively superficial aspects of life. You see them in perspective, you know, your particular opinions and ways in which we've been conditioned and everyone in this room has had a different history of it. And more and more you settle into what we have in common, which is we're all born of mothers and we're all going to die. We have to make sense out of that period of time that we have with each other and alone. And seen from that vantage point, not as an ideology, but as a direct perception such notions as nationalism seem childish, silly, stupid. Not because of, its in, of, of a moral thing, but because it doesn't work. It's just as if you would find that something is painful, you would not use it anymore. Let's say it's poisonous. Uh, a classical example used by the ancients. If you see a snake, you get out of the way. Okay, if you see that nationalism is like a snake, it's an act of intelligence to begin to dissolve this. If you don't, if there's no real inner depth, no perception, then people are going to be pitted against each other, thinking that there are Russians versus Americans, that there are Koreans, and that there are all of it. So the message of meditation, although it comes from a very, uh, comes out of solitude, 
has no, so little to do, the deepest experiences of it have nothing to do with the, the marketplace and all the uh, sounds and colors and shapes that capture our existence all the time. The message, if applied to this day and age, can cut through the problems because the problems are the same. The forms have changed. Okay, I think that's pretty much all that I'd like to say. And I don't know what your experience is if you've been doing this form of meditation for a while. Probably it's a little bit different than if you've just walked in tonight and, and don't even know what I'm talking about you know, for the last few minutes. Anyone have any comments or questions? If you like, pause for a while. and. Who's been working on the ego for three decades? Okay, this is the this is the the big question. See, because it may be the ego's working on the ego. It's very slippery. The ego, as soon as it becomes a new project, no ego, uh, selflessness. Is, that's the way. Then you know. Then oh, I'm going to get in on that action. So then the ego jumps behind and look how egotistical I am there and there and there and there. Aren't I? selfless. It's just wonderful how I'm seeing through all of my ego hang-ups. Who's seeing through the ego hang-ups? It's ego's ingenious way of surviving. You know, um, This particular form of meditation is designed to uh, allow those expressions of self-centeredness to completely surface. Or as not to try and stamp them out. And in the light of very gentle, loving attention, See how it's like a, it's like studying a four-year-old. You know how egotistical little children are you know, like want, want, want all day. I want, I want, I want. We're not that different. We're just more sophisticated and disguised, and you know we cover it over a bit. Seeing that with compassion, or it's in us. Each one of us has that. Pardon? Yeah. So do I. So do I. Okay. And so uh, the practice is suggesting uh, a loving. Familiarity, or it's getting to know that which has, we need it, and I mean, you have to become an adult to function, and then the question becomes, is this it? Am I going to spend the rest of my life buttering up this entity and warding off threats to it, day in and day out, dressing it, washing it, you know, cosmeticizing it, parading it so that it feels okay and it never works? If it would work, great, but it's exhausting and it's not. Okay, so then. The, is clear in this kind of teaching I, I would say in all spiritual teaching is how to release ourselves the non-attachment doesn't mean uh, crushing it as terrible but it means let's say manifestations of ego come up if they come up they're not harmful you see yourself as the most greedy person wanting everything fine you let it out and you hear it with tenderness you really hear it it doesn't have potency if you do that it's what the ancients call taking the poison out of the fangs in the snake. In other words, the self-centeredness still comes out, whether you've been meditating for, I don't know, 20 years or 20 seconds. But more and more as you get familiar with how self-centered, how so many of our actions during the day are motivated by self-enhancement, 
I'll do this in order to get that. All day long it's on the line. That chair is better. I can see better from that point of view. I'll get over there. Fast. That person got it. I better, oh, I'll try the next one. I mean, it, it's almost everything we do. It's kind of infiltrates. Um, then you get to the next question, which is, is there anything beyond that? I mean, is this asking you to become a uh, prefrontal lobotomy patient? I mean, what else is there? You mean all these self-descriptions? I'm a this and I'm a that? The message is that there is. In fact, that who we really are are none of these descriptions. Because as we look at them, they're accidentally, they come and they go incessantly. And there's something deeper that seems to have a strength. Um, you, each one of us has to test that. Because if you believe what I just said, that might be nice. It might make you feel good for a few minutes, maybe a few hours. But the only thing that will really help is to try it, to taste it. Is it possible to live without the, this addiction to self-description? Endlessly describing ourselves and trying to protect those descriptions. Yes, uh, I'm a meditation teacher. Uh, yes, I'm a psychotherapist. Oh, yes, I'm speaking as, a, speaking as an Israeli, speaking as an Arab. Because what it's leading toward is, is, is being. Just, can we just be? Just be a human being. And again, all these uh, biographical things, they have their place too. It gives life its flavor. You know, like pepper and salt. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. Now, the question is of those, I know those people and the ones who are sparky, you know, uh, if we look at ego that way, it's more a kind of a, a qualities that we've accumulated. One person will be more talkative, another person will be more introverted. That doesn't have to change. One person will like sports, another person will like the movies. There's no one way to look and sound. But it's more, who's doing it? Who's doing it? Is, the per is there freedom in the midst of it? Is, is there freedom in the midst of it? Okay, now, if you're bringing awareness into daily life, one of the messages that I certainly learn, I, I don't know, probably you will too, is you find out how unfree, we find out how unfree we are. If you really start paying attention, you see how pushed around we are. A lot of it's by from the past. What our parents wanted for us, what the school system wanted for us. We think it's our own. There's precious little that's our own. We've just picked it's all second hand. We have all these opinions that we've accumulated and we'll even kill for them. Anyone I feel some uneasiness or some uh, you don't have to agree. And it'll be interesting to hear what yeah. Yes. Okay, see, I don't want to get caught in there are theories that go the other way too and it, you have to live your life. It gets kind of complicated. For example, I am vegetarian. 
but I don't, I don't think it's a particular virtue necessarily. Do you, you know what I'm saying? In other words, Adolf Hitler was vegetarian, so he and I, I'm in good company. What does it mean? Some of the great, great Tibetan masters ate meat. They had very little else to, to eat, and Tibet has, the food is not varied. I think that uh, uh, a healthy diet can be a tremendous aid on the path, no question about it. And maybe that means a healthy vegetarian diet. Uh, I'm not competent to solve that issue. I have for myself personally, just the way you have. But I, I don't feel confident in generalizing beyond that because I know that it's possible, I've seen it, people who eat meat or who eat vegetables. It's only one factor in life. It's an important issue, but it's not the ultimate issue. Do you see what I'm getting at? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, but you see, if you get attached to vegetarianism, then the poison is back in the fangs for you on a psychological level. You're going to, where you'll be walking around, look at that person eating meat. They're so gross, and oh, their bowels are all encoded with feces that's been there for 20 years, and, and you'll feel self righteous. I'm not saying you will, but you know, in other words, you might. If there's a hardening around the vegetarianism, it becomes an ism a source of separation and then the poison is back on another level that's how I meant it see it's on a lot of levels you're quite right in one level it may be that it's, it's we're putting toxins in our system when we eat dead animal flesh okay there's a lot of evidence that that's true but then if you make it into something and get attached to it and then start perceiving people a certain way then you've created a problem around the vegetarianism and that can be done around anything around shaving your head or growing a beard or going to a monastery, any form of righteousness is a prison. You've now created us and them, me and them. Do you see how I'm using that? Okay, so that the, the non, that's what is meant by non-attachment. Eat the vegetables by all means, but if you get caught in them, then you're not free. Then you've huge ve used vegetarianism to narrow down your life. And that's what most of us do. We pick one or another of things and then we, we pitch tents there. We drop anchor. And we become rigid around that. Yeah. Well, did he? He also said... Nothing that I say verbally is absolutely true. In other words, no verbal teaching, you're right in what you're saying. If he got attached to his Eightfold Path that way, it would be a contradiction. But in the higher teachings, you have to let go of Buddhism. There's no Eightfold Path. Those, in a sense, are markers along the way to get us into, the, into it. And at a certain point, definitely, the Eightfold Path, and some people use it that way, can become a trap. You're right. Now, I don't feel the Buddha did do that. I mean, there's, there's enough evidence that he didn't. Because, you see, the, in the higher realms, there's no thinking. You go, so where is, where is there an Eightfold Path? In fact, where is there a Buddhist? Buddhism exists as long as thinking exists. If you and I were to meet right now in terms of our being, I don't know what you are, what I am, you know, the thoughts you have about yourself, your occupation, your religion, your age, etc. And I have the same one, you know, different. But if we could meet at the level of being, then there isn't a problem. There's no problem between us. 
But then all of a sudden I find out, maybe I'm a meat eater. Oh, you're a vegetarian. And then it starts. Now, is it possible for you to remain vegetarian, for me to be a meat eater, and for that to not become the grounds upon which we, we pitch battle? That would be no attachment. Fine, you're living intelligently. You've discovered the wisdom of not eating meat and of eating vegetables. Full speed ahead. The problem comes in when you then you dip it in bronze, you know, mount it, and then you put it on the mantle place, and it becomes the only way. Good luck, because you're going to meet a lot of people who don't feel the way you do. And then what? Then you have to endlessly struggle with that. As I say, Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian. And many extraordinary yogis ate meat. It's one thing. more people oh I, I mean I, my answer is one a simple one uh, probably more people have been killed in the name of religion than anything else okay and if you think the Buddhists have, are exempt from that you're wrong They're, they've become hardened around the eightfold path too the real eightfold path is something that's alive it's a guideline you know it's a guideline to help you live again if you lock into it it can become a trap so the question is is it a door or is it a wall a dead end you know, why people in these religions don't do it, I would say a more fruitful question is, why don't you do it? In other words, find out in areas in your life, not to, to judge yourself, but through exploration, with this attitude of learning, areas in your life where you have these very nice sounding moral principles, and they're just good on Sunday morning, and then you go out and forget about it. If you want to change the whole uh, church, good luck. But, but that, yeah. Okay, Jesus gave them, I, I can't imagine a more compassionate teaching in the face of the earth, one of the highest teachings that human beings have ever received. How many people have been killed in the name of Jesus? Why, I mean, to eat meat is a, trivial compared to that one. You tell me, that's the big question. Okay, what I'm suggesting is you work on your violence. You work on your bestiality. Good, good. Me too. Vipassana?
Well, uh, in other words, I think what you're talking about is closer, maybe identical with what I'm suggesting. Yeah. Okay, now, one point of view... Yes. Okay. Right. None. Right. Okay, you're putting your finger on the problem in that um, enlightenment doesn't care how you get there. And these are all choices that human communities historically have made. And some have worked for a fair number of people. And the monastic choice has worked for some. Now, to me, the real test is, does it work? Okay, in other words, if it may be, my thinking mind is, well, a man shouldn't be cut off from a woman, and a woman shouldn't be cut off from a man. That's unnatural. Okay, but I have met people, you know, who have been monks since they were teenagers, who seem to be free as a bird, living in great clarity, love, and compassion. They've gone through that one. Maybe there are some people, Jesus, okay, the Buddha, the second part of his life. So I feel reluctant to tie down any form, either monastic or live in the world. Clearly, living fully in the world is not necessarily a guarantee of anything either. Okay. How fully are we... Okay. Maybe... Maybe what you're getting at, uh, which is uh, really helpful, is that what makes the difference is the wholeheartedness. In other words, whatever way feels good for you, do it. But it's the wholeheartedness that makes the difference. Shave your head, grow a beard, eat vegetables, but for God's sakes, do it. Okay, now most of us are not doing it. You know, we're hedging and compromising, and later on, when I get old, I'll do it. Or next lifetime, or whatever it is. So that that's what I mean. I can't pick out a form and say, this is the form. I'm not exalting daily life over monastic existence. I really am not. I'm saying that since I live in this life and I have no interest in becoming a monk, then I have to find a practice that's appropriate for this life as I find it, or else I'm lost. Sure. But I love this tradition. I found... Sure. Yeah. But I'm drawn to this one. So that's why, sure, I completely agree. This is the one I'm drawn to. I'm not saying... I don't, I have to. I don't feel I have a choice. Yeah. No, no, I, what, I mean, I've been in some of those other, I wasn't able to relate to them the same way. This one I can, so I have to... Um, they're sort of like your family. You have no choice. This is who you're born with. You have to work out with your family. You know, I wish I had a different father and different mother. Good luck. Okay, this is the one I'm drawn to, so I've got I've to I've clean it up here. Yeah.